You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been fathered by God and knows God. The person who does not love does not know God because God is love. So everyone who's heard the New Testament knows from its witness. Yet Christian theology does not always start there when we talk about providence, the strange but compelling ways in which God lives with creation. Thomas J. Ord wants to correct that. And in his recent book, The Uncontrolling Love of God, he proposes a theology in which non-coercive love is the starting point and a constant point of reference and the basis of critique throughout. Tom is here to talk about the book, and I'll, I'll stop here to remind our listeners that Tom, who's a generous guy, has given all Christian Humanist listeners a free copy of the audiobook version of this volume. You can access that, access that pardon me, through the episode show notes at christianhumanist.org, and I encourage you to listen to that before you take in this interview. So, Tom, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Hey, it's my privilege. It's good to be talking with you. Very good. I'm going to start somewhat in the middle of your book with your working definition of providence. Uh, any theology of providence, you write, accounts for, quote, God's activity in relation to creatures and the created order more generally, close quote. Before we get to some of the ways that Christians have engaged with providence, what makes the concept itself one worthy of a book or three? Well, I think providence is kind of the standard, the typical, the traditional way of talking about God's action. God's action, especially in create in relation to the world in general and events in the world more particular. And so um, I have a different way of thinking about God acting, a way that uh, is in some ways in contrast with the past, although in some other ways is continuous with it. And um, most people who have written about providence have had a notion of God's power that's different from mine. So I thought, I'd like to write a book that explores a different way of thinking about God acting in the world, a way primarily motivated by love and done through expressions of love. Okay. And as I said in the opening, I mean, you know, really the signature of this book is that you begin with a pretty philosophically rigorous notion of what love can be and what it, well, I mean, what it becomes uh, that's other than love when it does other things and I, I'm trying not to use your language here because I want you to use your language uh, but <laughs> uh, we're going to get to that here in a little bit but when you dig into providence I mean you want to make sure that you draw in at least a few concepts that are as old as Boethius uh, but you also want to draw in some things that you know come in really in the age of quantum physics so I want you to kind of talk about bridging that you know long discussion that long conversation and let's start with uncertainty and randomness. So Boethius talks about these in, you know, book five of the Consolation of Philosophy. Philosophers obviously were doing things with, the, with randomness before then. But how have recent developments in physics and genetics brought the old Consolation of Philosophy question of chance back into the work of theology? Yeah, great question. I think in the last hundred years, both in science and in philosophy, there's been uh, increased interest in the issues of chance and randomness. In fact, uh, one recent philosopher said that we live in an age of randomness. And by that, I think she meant that while in the past, the issues of chance and randomness were thought about, most folks 
thought that whatever seemed to be random in our world, whatever seemed to be a chance event, was either foreordained by God from all eternity, or at least foreknown by God. And uh, in my work, I had this opportunity to, I actually got a grant to help write this book, and the grant asked me to uh, pursue questions of randomness and chance in light of contemporary science, a science in which, as you mentioned, at the quantum level, randomness is assumed. Uh, it's a genetic level, it's assumed in terms of uh, random genetic mutations. Mm -hmm. But I think even in our everyday life, you know, most people, I think, don't really believe that God picks and chooses who wins the lottery or who wins the Monopoly game you're playing with your kids. Mm. And so I want to take um, those kinds of ideas and ask the question, what would providence look like if chance and randomness were truly even chance and random for God, if even God doesn't foreordain or even foreknow with absolute certainty everything that's going to happen in the world. Mm -hmm. And that's that's one of the places where you definitely depart from sort of classical notions of chance because, I, you know, yeah. uh, Consolation of Philosophy is a book that I teach fairly regularly, and I mean, Boethius well, is fairly clear that, you know, chance is a function of limited mortal knowledge that, by definition, it cannot exist for God. Um, right. So I mean, epistemic, not ontological, to use the philosophical language for Boethius. For Boethius, it's epistemic, not ontological. For right, me, it's right. Both epistemic and ontological. Mm -hmm. Although the more I teach that book, the more I wonder if Boethius has a category of the ontological at all. But that's another conversation for another day. Okay. But, um, but one of the things about randomness that you really kind of dig into is that uh, to say that there is randomness, to say that things can be random is not to say that everything is random. In fact, you, you establish that randomness only makes sense when it's in relationship with regularity, both in terms of creation and in the character of rational beings. So what kinds of difficulties do we run into when we over, overemphasize determination or when we overemphasize randomness? Because you talk about both of those as sort of traps intellectually. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I, I see people swinging too far one way or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, if, in fact, we acknowledge the reality of randomness and that it is truly random, at, even from a God's eye perspective, um, then some people worry that, you know, everything is uh, sort of chaotic and random. There's absolute randomness. And I especially hear this worry amongst some Christians who are... Uh, who are worried about evolution and who mm -hmm. believe that if you have, if you affirm evolution and the random genetic mutations, you must then affirm that everything is random, that there is no purpose, there is no freedom, no uh, environmental pressures, et cetera, et cetera. I think, in fact, there's lots of regularities. I, I shy away from calling them the laws of nature. I like to call them law-like regularities, mm -hmm. but um, the regularities are so widespread that um, they provide the basis for consistency in our life, the basis for um, some notions of cause and effect. Um, they're, they're, they're widespread. So I think if you're going to make sense out of the world, let alone try to have a theology of providence, you have to acknowledge that there are both random events and lots of regularities in our lives. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, I mean, when you talk about uh, that regularity, uh, 
you point out something that I, I think I heard some David Hume influence here, and you can correct me if I'm wrong there. When you say yeah. that, you know, when you talk about science, science can only observe cor- correlative events. There is no thing called causality to be observed. So exactly. if, if we grant that sort of skeptical David Hume point, what benefits come from conceiving of the world as taking shape as a partner as a partnership, I'll put it this way, between God and then limited but genuinely free creatures. What kinds of things can we do intellectually that we can't do if we fall into those pitfalls? Yeah, well, I, I think Hume is a great philosopher, but he also made some pretty major mistakes. Mm-hmm. And one of his major mistakes was to dismiss the idea of causation. He called it constant conjunction. Uh-huh. He, he rightly says that we cannot see or perceive causation with our, our five senses. Okay. Uh, but then he says because we can't see it, you know, that means we shouldn't uh, take it as reality. I think that we should take causation as reality. It's more than just constant conjunction. Mm-hmm. And then we can understand uh, the world as consisting of things that occur not only through creaturely causation, but in my view, God also has causation in all that occurs. But what makes my view different from most people is that I think that in every event in the world whatsoever, there is both creaturely causation at play and divine causation, such that there's no event that is entirely a creature, uh, caused by creatures, or no event that is entirely caused by God. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. Uh, one sidetrack that I'm going to take, just because we're going to start talking about the relationships between that sort of idea of cooperative causation on the one hand, and then uh, what it is that we praise about God on the other hand, is this idea of evil. Uh, and you make a distinction early in the book between necessary evil and genuine evil. Uh, I, I know that you know when my students hear necessary evil, they assume that a politician must have said it. But in, <laughs> in, in, in philosophy, it has its own uh, more narrow technical sense. So tell our listeners a little bit, I mean, what is it that marks a necessary evil apart from a genuine evil in this book? Yeah, you know, sometimes people use the word gratuitous instead of genuine, or mm-hmm. sometimes instead of uh, necessarily they'll use the word apparent. Yeah. But what I want to really emphasize is the idea that um, we all presuppose in the way we live our lives that some events that occur in the world have made the world worse than it might have been had some other events occurred. Mm-hmm. So I think there are genuine evils, those things that didn't have to be the case, that makes the world, generally speaking, or in an overall perspective, worse than it might have been. There are a lot of people who will walk around and say, well, you know, it looks like it's evil, but, you know, we don't know. Maybe from a God's eye perspective, it's not really evil. Maybe it's part of some mysterious master plan uh, from God. Mm -hmm. But yet we all act as if we think evil events. In fact, if you're a Christian like I am and you have a category of sin, sin is something that opposes what God wants. And apparently that sounds an awful lot like evil. Mm -hmm. But even if you're not a Christian— you uh, presuppose that there are genuine evils in the world by the way you end up uh, claiming or uh, placing blame on others, uh, saying that they're culpable for things, uh, deciding that folks shouldn't have done what they did, you know, and then that there's some sort of moral accountability or moral responsibility that's 
that's all taken together in this notion of good and evil. In fact, not just parent evil, but genuine evil. Mm-hmm. Well, and what's interesting about that is that even when we think about, you know, moral action, you know, I mean, most theories of action have some kind of notion built in that we do things for the sake of something. So there's at least implicit there a vision of how the world could be better, indicating that right now it's not as good as it could be. So, I mean, I I think your point there, I mean, is one that we do well to note. And, And, you know, like I said, I mean, there's certainly some common ground here with the ancient philosophers in that respect. You know, yes. all of them had this notion of act as being part of a grander scheme that has some sort of aim. So, I, yes. I, and and the reason I bring that up is because, you know, the models of providence that you sketch out all have some kind of aim, at, at the very least built into them, even if it's never articulated explicitly as aim. So, the model that you call uh, God as the omnicause, and which I usually just call omnicausality because I like nouns with lots of syllables... Uh, is something that I've heard, and I mean, I've always thought that if I push on a Calvinist hard enough, they'll back off of it, and I'm always horrified that they never do. Uh, But this is the idea that, you know, everything is directly and without remainder caused by God. Uh, Now, you do note in the book, and I give you credit for this, that this has its own roots in the scriptural witness. So, what texts in the Bible lead the strongest determinists in this direction, and what problems arise when you make those texts sort of the most important texts when you start doing theology? Yeah, you know, I don't think there's as many as most people like to think, or at least I would put it this way. I typically interpret the passages that Calvinists use to affirm omnicausality in a different way than they do. But there are some texts that, you know, look, uh, on, at least on the face of it, uh, as if God is the one who does everything. You know, there's mm-hmm. an Old Testament text that says, I am the Lord, I cause good and evil, weal and woe. Um, and then, of course, if you're someone uh, who believes, um, who really strongly believes in determinism, you might point to passages like when God hardens Pharaoh's heart as mm-hmm. an instance in which God is controlling. Right, a famously contested text when Luther and Erasmus are battling this out. Exactly, yeah, yeah, and, and still today, one that I hear most often as a critique of my own view, mm-hmm. one that I think we have some, some better interpretations of, but um, a lot of Calvinists will say, well, God doesn't actually cause everything, but God is the one who decides our salvation, ultimately, so they'll distinguish between omnicausality with regard to salvation and omnicausality in all things other than salvation. Mm-hmm. But uh, it sounds to me like what you, from what you said earlier, that, that I'm with you in thinking that at the end of the day, they probably should say omnicausality on all things. Uh, because, in mm-hmm. fact, Calvin will appeal to the secret will of God and he'll, he'll reject the idea of chance. And when it comes to the end of the day, it doesn't sound like we're really free. Um, so I think that omnicausality, I, I respect it for being intellectually consistent, mm-hmm. but... I don't think it makes a lot of sense out of our lives, and actually I don't think it makes the best sense out of interpreting the Bible. Right, right. Uh, and, you know, actually, I, I don't even think of Calvin first and foremost when I think of that, but I do think of, you know, the Luther-Erasmus debate the on the bondage of yeah. the will, uh, where Luther actually does, you know, say that we have to say that everything that God does is good, 
we also have to say that he has this hidden will that is good in a way that is unintelligible. And, you know, I, I, I have argued many a time with, you know, reformed type people uh, that, I mean, that basically evacuates goodness of its intellectual content. I and, agree. And, yeah. they, and they say, no, it doesn't. And once again, that's another conversation for another day. Because yeah. I, want to, I want to talk about your book, Tom, not about my hangouts <laughs> with Lutherans. So, <laughs> um, if we've got on the omnicausality on one extreme, on the other one, I, I like the way that you that you formulate this idea of a current observer model of providence. So, God might have created, and in fact, most of them will confess that God did in fact create, but. After that, God becomes exclusively an observer of what goes on in the world and not really involved with it. So on the one hand, I mean, I've got to give him credit. I mean, this does, uh, at the very least, make sense of the other central reality that Boethius insists on, namely that free will is a reality. It's necessary for moral responsibility. Uh, On the other hand, as you point out, it still falls short when you're trying to make sense of life. Why, Why does it fall short? In terms of the current observer? Yeah, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think the current observer uh, approach falls short on a number of levels. First of all, I think it's very difficult, if you have a sort of a, a high view of Scripture, to think that uh, the God described in Scripture kicked the whole thing off long ago and now stands at it, like Bette Midler says, sits you know, watching us from a distance. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I think if you read the scripture and you think that there's tells us something true about God, then you have to have a God who's at least in some way interactive. Uh, in my view, God is interactive in every single event in the entire universe, but never controlling. Mm-hmm. I think you can make better sense out of religious experience if you have a God who is active in the world. I think you can make better sense out of um, events that you believe are good and loving. Uh, I think you can even make sense out of more contentious events like miracles if you think that God is present and active in the world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then sort of just some of the daily practices from that people in a variety of religious traditions uh, follow like uh, prayer makes a lot more sense if God is present and in some way influenced by what we do. Mm-hmm. Well, listeners, uh, in between those two models, and this is why you need to listen to the audiobook that's available at ChristianHumanist.org, and you need to go buy the book because it's a good book to read, uh, Tom lays out a number of models that are neither completely God as observer and, and also not completely God as controller. And I have to admit, Tom, that I was surprised to see Jack Cottrell's name mentioned in a book that doesn't come from my own Stone Campbell circles. <laughs> I didn't think anyone had ever heard of Jack Cottrell, uh, but there he is, page 87, Jack Cottrell. <laughs> so one of the critiques that I found most interesting, because honestly, when you describe these theologies, they sound like the way that I think of the Bible when I read the Bible, uh, but you critique theologies like Cottrell's, like Roger Olson's, other people, when you say that a God who acts in certain ways, in some moments, but not in others, that lacks explanatory consistency. So what does that theology of providence fail to explain? It seems like some people are healed, some people are not. So, I mean, it seems like, you know, just on a very uh, basic face value, it explains a fair bit. What does it not explain? Well, I think there's a number of things, and I'll I'll mention two of them. Mm -hmm. One of them is that when you get conversations with folks who have what I call this 
accidental free will theism, or sometimes called I call it in our voluntary kenosis, or yeah. uh, the uh, the uh, empower and over uh, overpowering kind of modes. Mm-hmm. That um, when you ask for an explanation for an event, they will sometimes appeal to creaturely actions, sometimes appeal to God's actions, sometimes mm-hmm. appeal. Div- uh, devil, uh, satanic actions. They might even refer to chance every once in a while, but I don't find a coherent um, theology to help us to know which of those should get the fullest responsibility for the action involved. Mm -hmm. So it's this um, kind of this uh, shotgun approach that doesn't give the kind of consistency that I want. Mm -hmm. And that's especially prevalent when it comes to the issues of evil. Folks like Roger Olson, and Roger's a good friend of mine, uh, will say things like, uh, well, God didn't want that evil to occur, but God allowed it, or God permitted Mm -hmm. it. And then we have to ask the question, well, if God permitted it, then didn't God really want it more than the alternatives, so whatever those alternatives seem to be? And you end up not being able to give it, at least in my view, a satisfactory answer to the problem of evil. Mm -hmm. So, um... The problem of evil was one of the primary um, driving forces in my writing this book. I wanted to offer an explanation for evil that made sense, that didn't have to appeal to a God who permitted or allows evil every once in a while, but a God who loves consistently. Um, And so that's one of the reasons why Cottrell's and Olson's views don't satisfy me. Okay, that's fair enough. One one sidetrack I want to take here because this honestly made my brain hurt is that you put uh, Phil Clayton in this category as well. Yeah. Tell me about that. Cause that, like I said, I expected him to be at least six steps down this seven step spectrum that you had, but there he was with Roger Olson. So why, why do you well, place I... Phil Clayton's not even once theology in this same category? Yeah, I think Phil's, uh, theology differs from Roger Olson's, for instance, in mm-hmm. matters of degree, but not kind. Okay. And what I mean by that is that um, Philip, at the end of the day, has a God who could intervene to control any particular instance to prevent evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to Philip's model, God at the beginning of the universe, which God created out of absolutely nothing, God had the kind of power to control beings along the way, but God, for whatever reason, some sort of promise perhaps, made a decision to not even once intervene to control a situation. But the problem with that particular view is that that means that every evil we see in the world, every particular atrocity like a genocide, every uh, you know rape, murder, torture, for some reason, God doesn't think it's important enough to intervene to stop that situation. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really hard for folks who go through intense struggles, intense evils, to think that the God who could have stopped it is, you know, sitting there, perhaps empathizing, but uh, not exercising the kind of power that this God essentially has to prevent what's happening in that situation. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you a sort of pastoral follow-up on that. I mean, it seems to me, as I was reading your book, that there's not that much daylight between that position and a position of essential kenosis, which we're going to talk about in more detail later, that says that God created the world in a manner that, by definition, he could not intervene rather than simply choosing not to intervene. It, it seems like in both of those, 
you've got a God who either designed a universe that outstrips his own ability to intervene or a God that doesn't outstrip his ability to intervene, but he just chooses not to. And either way, it seems like at that initial act of creation, there's some kind of defect. I mean, am I misreading your position here? Because if I am, I want you to tell me how. Yeah, I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't call it a defect. I mm -hmm. would say that God's nature is such that God must create and must love, and that love always gives agency, freedom, self-organization, et cetera, to, create, to creatures. Mm -hmm. But pastorally, I think there's a real advantage to my option over ones like Phillips, although I you know, respect and admire Philip a great deal. Oh, certainly, certainly. And, uh, maybe uh, the way to illustrate this is to say that um, is to say that let's say a physician, a doctor, mm -hmm. comes upon an auto accident, and there's somebody you know in this car strapped in, and you know it's all mangled up, and the person is bleeding or something major is happening, and um, the doctor has the knowledge and the ability to to save the person, keep them from dying. Mm -hmm. um, if the doctor doesn't do that because mm -hmm. the doctor makes a choice not to, even though it has that ability, then we really question the, um, the moral superiority of that doctor. We really question whether that doctor is really loving. Mm -hmm. um, if, however, the doctor can't, for whatever reason, um, prevent the death, um, then you can say the doctor wanted to, but whatever the, the circumstances made it the case that the doctor couldn't and therefore you don't have to question the moral responsibility the the love of the doctor now in mm -hmm. my case makes it the case that god can't prevent evil is that god's nature always gives freedom and agency to others mm -hmm. uh, so that at the end of the day you can't say to my god uh, boy you should have fixed it you could have done so but you chose mm -hmm. not uh, you have to say to my God, you know, you did all that you could do, but uh, it wasn't possible for you to prevent that particular evil because creatures use their freedom or their agency wrongly. Okay. Well, I'm going to press on you on this. Uh, and it's Good. funny, I, uh, as I said when we were talking before the show, I mean, I went to a theology beer camp out at Redondo Beach with Trip Fuller, and I got to talk to John Cobb, and I'm realizing I'm, I'm posing the same questions to you that I posed to him here. But it, but it seems that in the lament psalms, among other places in the scriptures, that's precisely what people are saying to God. Uh, how long, O oh Lord, the wicked are prospering. I'm getting my teeth kicked in. I've got a flat tire. I lost my pickup truck. I think I you know, faded into country music there from the psalms. But you get the idea, right? Uh, you know, in these psalms, the psalmic voice is crying out to God and at least implying, even if not directly stating, that God has the capacity to do this. And in fact, they often end with a sort of utterance of confidence that God can do such. So, I mean, as you read those, I mean, from within this interpretive strategy that we're talking about, how do you read those lament psalms? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't read them in the way that most people have read them. And okay. I will admit that uh, some of the biblical passages seem to lead to a position other than the one that I'm proposing here. Okay. But I think more to do with the way we've interpreted the lament songs than, than what they necessarily have to be interpreted. 
So, um, you know, I reject the notion of lament that says that God could step in to fix it, un something unilaterally, but God is just, you know, waiting around for some reason. Mm -hmm. um, I do accept the lament notion that folks are expressing the deep frustrations that they have uh -huh. and asking God and asking how long, not in the sense of how long you're going to wait around until you come back and kick some butt, but... Okay. Long will it be before creation cooperates with what you want to do so that mm -hmm. together we can make this world or this situation the way it should be? Um, okay. That's the way I, I would approach those, but I admit that there are some instances in which the lament sound, uh, laments sound like God could intervene to prevent something unilaterally. Mm -hmm. Well, and, I, and again, I'm going to keep pushing this because I'm, I'm not nearly as nice as Tom Award, so I'm going to keep pushing on this. <laughs> Uh, no, it's not about being nice or not. <laughs> well, it, it happens that I'm not, so it fits. So <laughs> something that occurred to me as I read and, and something that I want you to either affirm or rebut is that, you know, when I read Calvinists and, I, and you know, people who, who read ChristianHumanist.org know that I just interacted with B.A. Bosserman's recent book about the Trinity and Providence from a very, very sort of Westminster Seminary Calvinist position. And then I immediately finished that book, and I realized in retrospect this is probably bad for my soul, jumped on a plane and went to theology beer camp and spent a week with process thinkers. <laughs> and when I came out of that and I started to read your book, it occurred to me that both Calvinists and process and open and relational folks want to have a, a theology without contradictions. And I realized that my own tendency is to say, all right, these lament psalms, Seem to run, seem to fly in the face of, of what Tom rightly points out in other point, parts of the Bible. Might it be better just to leave those contradictions sitting and, and just live with them rather than try to resolve them? So, tell me, Tom, am I am I diagnosing you right, or should I go back to my rhetoric and literary criticism? <laughs> yeah, I think you you've got me mostly right. I'm a person okay. who works really hard to overcome contradictions. Uh huh. Uh, I'm a person who. Uh, sort of recoils to the quick appeals to mystery that I often encounter, not only by mm -hmm. lay people, but theologians. Sure. Uh, I don't pretend to have everything figured out. I think mm -hmm. there's plenty of mystery in life, but I think our approach ought to be to articulate the best overall model that we can and then compare that model to the others on the table. And in my view, the best overall model is probably going to be the one with the fewest rational inconsistencies. Okay. And so I want to lift up this model and say, okay, here's my proposal. Um, I don't claim to know all things. Uh, I think it fits actually very well with the broad biblical witness, but mm -hmm. I admit there's probably some biblical passages that don't fit really well. But I think I've got the majority of the Bible on my side. Okay, that's fair enough. Yeah, and then to say, okay... Here it is. Go at it. If you can come with something better, then I'll switch to your model. But this uh -huh. is the best I can come up with right now. I got you. I got you. And then my approach says, why do we need one model? Let's have models. But that's, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I actually, I, I Trip Fuller and I have talked about this more than once. He said, y yeah. you, you're just not cut out for systematic theology, Gilmore. I said, yeah, you're right. I, it's yeah. probably a good thing I became an English professor. I, <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not good at these sort of things. Well, I want, I want to turn back to your book, though, because, again, I, I'm running off on these rabbit trails, and that's not fair yeah. to this no good problem. book that you've read. Uh, but I want you to talk about some of the theological heavy lifting you do in this book, because 
you say that theology looks substantially different when you begin not with divine freedom, as some theologies do, or divine power, as others do, or some other predicate, right? I mean, you know, the history of theology shows that we can start at any number of entry points when we talk about God. You say, let's start 1 John 4, 8, God is love. What does theology look like, and how does it differ from other theologies when that's where you start rather than leaving that as a place that you arrive at later? Yeah, well, I mean, I think I'm not the first person to say that we ought to start with love, although mm -hmm. I, I think I'm those of us who do that are still in the minority. Mm -hmm. I do think I'm one of the few people who say we should start with love, and then I actually give a definition of what love is uh, mm -hmm. to all. Folks who begin with love, uh, I think, fail to define it well, and then it's not clear exactly what kind of headway we're making mm -hmm. in uh, theology. So I uh, say, let's start with love, and I f define love as acting intentionally in response to God and others to promote overall well-being. Mm -hmm. And then I say, if we have this as our starting point, uh, we can still obviously affirm God's other attributes, but they are logically... Um, secondary to love and this understanding of love will then shape the way we think about God's power, God's mm -hmm. choice, God's knowledge, God's presence, etc. And I think, and again, this is my bias here, I think we can do a better job of accounting for the overall uh, biblical witness and accounting for the way we live our lives, what we expect of one another and our morals. I think it makes better sense of what we're finding, or at least we seem to be finding in the sciences. And so it's not just that I have, sort of have a, a priority of love, and I think that's just the way people ought to do it a priori. I think it makes better explanatory sense of our lives and the world we live in. Okay. All right. Now, one of the attributes of that love that you lay out in your definition is that it's non-coercive, and you, you lay out at least three, as I remember, definitions of coercion before settling on a philosophical coercion that is going to be at the core of your definition and the others are going to remain sort of secondary. So for the sake of our readers, I mean, who are going to get to that section either in the audio book or in the printed book, uh, what are those three kinds of coercion and which one do you have in mind when you say that love is non-coercive? Yeah. I think probably the most common way people use coercion, you know, in everyday speech or mm -hmm. you hear it on the news occasionally, is the idea of coercion as kind of uh, putting lots of uh, psychological pressure on someone. Uh, mm -hmm. At its worst, it's bullying. Um, and it's, you know, people will say, hey, China is coercing some African country to do something. Otherwise, they're going to stop buying their oil or something like that. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. not the kind of coercion that involves totally controlling them, but it's putting lots of pressure and making the f person who feels coerced uh, feel like they really have to do something. Otherwise, they're going to pay some negative consequences that are pretty dire. Mm -hmm. That's not the way I'm using coercion in this book, although I don't think God's in the business of bullying. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Second, second way some people use the word coercion involves what I call bodily impact. And so we can imagine a mother who sees her four-year-old run into the street, and even though the four-year-old is using his own free will to run out into the traffic, she uses her body to pick up the four-year-old and you know, whisk him out of the street to safety. That's what I call bodily coercion. 
-hmm. I don't think God has a localized body, and therefore God's not capable of doing that kind of coercion. But mm -hmm. that's not the kind of coercion I'm talking about in this book. What I'm talking about is a more metaphysical or philosophical notion of coercion, and that is what uh, philosophers oftentimes call uh, acting as a sufficient cause, or sometimes they use the phrase unilateral determination. And so this is the idea that God completely controls a person or a situation or factors and actors in order to bring about a particular result. That's mm -hmm. the kind of thing that I actually don't think God has the other kinds of coercion. But when I talk about coercion or control in this book, I have in mind that last, that philosophical notion of it. Mm -hmm. All right. Very good. Um, I've got sort of a follow-up question to that because one of the things that you do say that God does and, and really the mode of interaction that you most thoroughly focus on is this mode of calling the creation to its better possibilities, right? Yeah. I want you to talk for just a moment about how that relates to sort of modern notions of mind that are so thoroughly tied up with brain states. Uh, so in other words, I mean, when God calls a rational being to a better possibility... Is there no interaction with brain states, or is it an indirect one, or is there some other Cartesian hypothalamus that I'm missing here, or yeah. what's going on there? Yeah, great question. I think we have minds, and those minds are tied to brains, mm -hmm. and those minds are heavily influenced by brains, and, and the rest of our bodily members, in fact. And so when God calls us to do something in any particular moment, God takes into account the other factors involved and the um, possibilities that we have at any particular moment set before us are always constrained by our brains, our bodies, our mm -hmm. environment, etc. And so God calls us to do the best amongst the possible uh, options in any particular moment. And so uh, God's acting then, uh, God's calling, God's persuading, God's commanding, whatever kind of language you want to use there, is amongst what's possible, uh, given the kinds of actors and factors involved. Mm -hmm. I also should say that I've been influenced by uh, Alfred North Whitehead in terms of thinking about reality as more experiential rather than in philosophically we use the language of substantivalism or substantial. Mm -hmm. um, that is, I, I think of reality as involving entities that have some sort of responsiveness to their environment. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that this kind of responsiveness is uh, makes it possible then for God to act in persuasive and uncontrolling ways that don't involve God controlling or overriding the responsiveness of the entities. So I'm okay. kind of presupposing a metaphysics or an ontology that I don't really spell out very much in detail in this book, but I think it makes a pretty good sense scientifically. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. I want to turn here to a couple particular Bible passages that you talk about in this book because uh, the interpretation of the Bible is often uh, sort of the front on which theology happens. When we dispute how to read the Bible that's often where our theological disagreements come to the fore. And the first one that I want to dig into is a reading of Philippians 2 that honestly I hadn't encountered before. Uh, but you say that, you know, it's not new with you. It's one that's, you know, happened before in the history of interpretation. And it is the notion that when Jesus does his echonason thing, 
he reveals not just a, a voluntaristic act on the part of God, but actually reveals the canonic nature of God whom Christians worship. So I want you to talk about that uh, how you will. Uh, but first, humor an English professor here. Uh, <laughs> in what way is it a praise of Jesus, which that hymn seems to be doing, if in fact Jesus's goodness is reflected in the fact that he doesn't exploit equality with God? If God is already canonic, what is there there to exploit that Jesus didn't exploit? Yeah. Yeah, that word exploit, I'm not sure is the best word to use there. So I, Okay, I, I go ahead. Begin there. Uh-huh. I, just, I typically think of that phrase, and, and again, this is part of a song, uh, so I'm I feel more obligated to play loose, fast and loose with with uh, poetry than I do with other things. But, okay, by um, all means, do. Um, I think of, well, actually, I'm not the only one to think of it this way. Um, a lot of contemporary theologians think that what the canonic passage is telling us mm -hmm. is that this particular person, Jesus Christ gives us some revelation, some understanding of who God is. Um, earlier in Christian theology, this particular passage was used to talk a lot about Trinitarian issues and whether or not, you know, Jesus had all the divine attributes or not when mm -hmm. Jesus was on earth and that sort of thing. But more and more folks today are saying, no, it's not really about um, the Trinitarian questions. It's really more about what this Jesus can tell us about God's nature. Mm -hmm. Now, what most folks do then is they say, okay, what Jesus is telling us is that God has a nature of love. I call it self-giving others, empowering love. Some people call it self-emptying. There's all kinds of, you know, you can interpret that phrase a lot of different ways. Oh, sure, but sure. What they want to say is that what Jesus is telling us is that God voluntarily decided to act in certain ways, that God voluntarily decided not to control others, to give freedom. Jürgen Moltmann goes down this road, as do a lot of canonic theologians today. And what makes my view different from theirs is I want to say, yes, God does give freedom. God does self-empty, if you want to use that language, although mm -hmm. I think there's some reason you should use others. Yeah, in the um, book you prefer self-giving. Right, self-giving, mm -hmm. others empowering, you know, yeah. some people call it the cruciform notion. Mm -hmm. But what makes my view different is that I don't think it's a voluntary choice on God to be, on God's part to be like this. I think it tells us something about God's essence, something about who God is by nature. And so I call the kind of Moltmann and, and some of the others who have similar interpretations, I call their view God's involuntary, I mean, sorry, God's voluntary uh, self-limitation for on behalf of the world. And so it's mm -hmm. a choice God makes to give freedom. It's a choice God makes to give and empower others. And my view says, no, this is something God must do because this is God's nature of love. So you could call my view involuntary self-limitation if you want to, mm -hmm. but I'm calling it essential kenosis. And so the difference when it comes down to it is that we, these other theologians and I basically agree on the idea that God is uh, self-giving, others empowering, freedom giving, self-agent or self-organization giving. But I think it's a part of God's eternal nature to do so, and they think it's God's voluntary choice to do so. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. 
the other passage, and actually it's one of it's it's the second of three passages. So uh, we'll we'll okay. finish out with three. The preachers in our audience will approve. Yeah, the I like the Bible, so let's do this. All right, all right. The second one is the Red Sea crossing. Uh, I want to really just kind of tee this passage up for you because when I read it, you know, because I, I did go back and revisit it after I read your book. I mean, it seems like what happens here is you've got a mass crossing of newly dried land. Uh, and when the people that God wants to cross get done crossing, then it stops being dry land and becomes something else that entraps or in some versions destroys other people in the story. So in what sense is this not a selective mir miracle, a gratuitous benefit to the pursued at the expense of the pursuers? Yeah, great question. Let me begin by saying that um, what, what we're talking about here is what a lot of biblical scholars will call nature miracles. Mm -hmm. and, um, the proposal I have on miracles, I think, fits very nicely with most of the miracles in the Bible, most of the healings, the, um, the um, um, uh, what do you call it when you cast out a demon? Exorcism. Uh, exorcism, yeah, those sorts of things. Um, but I, I want to admit that it's harder for uh, us to easily conceive how this occurs amongst the, uh, at the quantum level or the inanimate objects of reality. So let me begin with that. Okay. Then let me say that um, I think we can actually make some headway here. The, the Red Sea miracle doesn't, uh, doesn't undermine my proposal entirely. Uh, it just is a little harder. Okay. Um, if we think about the indeterminacy that occurs at the quantum level and bring in some notions of chaos theory and some other uh, things that physicists are proposing these days and say that um, we can talk about God acting at these levels and not have to think that water molecules are responding to God or um, that kind of thing. We can right. say that God acts in relation to the smallest elements of reality. And God can make predictions just like we can, in fact, with greater accuracy that we can in terms of uh, what's going to happen with weather patterns, what's going to happen in terms of water molecules, etc. Because God, <laughs> we have the law of large numbers, uh, the, whom we might, the one we might say is the universal observer has got a real advantage in the law of law, large numbers and that mm -hmm. this, you know, this universal observer can see the whole in much greater clarity than we can see it. So having said all that, I propose that maybe some of the ways we can think about the, the Red Sea uh, crossing is to say that God knows the weather patterns involved. In fact, Many people have said there's the, the Red Sea has parted in other instances uh, throughout history. And so God can also communicate uh, with Moses and the people of Israel. Um, I do admit that then the notion of God wiping out all the Egyptians, etc., uh, mm -hmm. sounds like a God is, you know, not exactly very loving there, killing all the enemies. Uh, I, in that instance, interpret it as the Israelites giving a theological explanation for what happened that may not entirely be accurate uh, in terms okay. of they you know wanted to kill them off but that's how that's how i kind of try to work with the red sea crossing all the while saying this is a proposal obviously i wasn't there but um if we think about the red sea crossing in this kind of way then we can avoid some of the other assumptions about God's power that get us into trouble when we talk about the problem of evil and, and other things. Okay, that's fair enough. That's fair yes. enough. 
<laughs> well, well, Tom, since I'm already being a turd, I'm going to go just straight for the book that Good. probably a lot of our listeners are thinking of. Okay. Uh, when you when you actually read past chapter two in Job, which a lot of my students don't, which is why I teach that book because it's one that I want them to confront. Yeah. You get you get Job as a character saying things like Yahweh has become my enemy, Yahweh has done this to me, uh, and then at the end, I mean, if Job just said that and we just kind of left it there, we'd be fine. But then at the end, Yahweh says to Eliphaz. Go have Job pray for you because you've spoken what is not right. He's spoken what is right. This, I mean, I would think, well, first of all, I mean, this book is one of the reasons why I say just leave the contradictions in there because if not, I have no idea what to do with Job. But (laughs) (laughs) I want to hear you give me a reading of Job. So, I mean, Job as a character says, God has become my enemy. God has done this to me. Yeah. God says he has spoken what is right. Yep. Teach me, Tom. How should I read Job? <laughs> well, my proposal is probably, you're not going to like it, but I'll put it that, out there. Anyway. That is okay. <laughs> I think uh, much of the theology in Job is wrong. I think okay. theology sucks. Think about the way this book begins. Mm-hmm. It's like God, and actually it doesn't say Satan in the Hebrew. It says right, the it's evil Hasatan, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. God and, and the evil one are sitting around playing cards. I mean, they're not actually playing cards, but we can imagine this. Sure. And God sort of starts bragging. Hey, have you checked out my my good man, Job? That guy, he is so faithful, so righteous, so obedient. A number one guy. And the evil one looks back at him across his cards and says, oh, come on. Job's just figured out the laws of cause and effect. Job's just figured out that you reap what you sow. Job's figured out that if you're a good guy, then you will end up living a good life. And he's just following rational decisions about being good means your life being good. But I tell you what, God, if you let me screw with him, if you let me go down and make his life horrible, I'll I'll bet you that he will turn away from you and he won't be righteous anymore. And God's like, hey, bring it. I'll take that bet. Let's do this. Now, that doesn't seem to me like the kind of God we see in the rest of the scriptures. It doesn't seem to me like the kind of God who I actually want to believe in in terms of being loving, who who makes deals with the devil, who plays with us at, in terms of having, making a bet with the evil one. Mm-hmm. So I think the whole book starts off telling us that there's something going on here theologically that we probably don't want to buy into. In my view, what the whole book of Job is about is telling us that bad things happen to good people. There are other passages in the Old Testament especially that give us the impression that the righteous will do well, but the unrighteous will suffer. Mm-hmm. And so if you look around and you see people suffering, well, you must they must be unrighteous. They must not be obeying God because their life sucks right now. Mm-hmm. I think of Job is a huge lesson to say, you know what, sometimes the righteous do suffer. Sometimes life sucks for those who are obedient. And so it's a, it's a, and actually I'm not the first one to propose this as a reading of Job, but I think that that's what the story is doing there, um, not mm-hmm. some giving us an accurate view of how God acts in relation to us and the world. Mm-hmm. That's fair enough. And I, yeah, I mean, listeners, you know, hopefully you hear, you know, my, reading of Job and Tom's, and you see why that book drove me into the arms of Derrida, and it didn't do so to Tom, so that's <laughs> all right. I, 
Yeah, that's I understand <laughs> that. I want to say one other thing though, because I think I don't yeah, know what boosters are on this, but um, I grew up in a you know pretty conservative church. I was a fundamentalist. Um, mm-hmm. I thought that the Bible had to be without errors in all respects, and I thought it had to be like a systematic theology. Mm-hmm. That everything in the Bible, in some way, in some manner, fit perfectly together. Mm-hmm. And that if I just understood it correctly, I could see how it all made sense rationally. Mm-hmm. I don't have that view. I don't think the Bible is systematic theology, and practically every biblical scholar I know agrees with me. Oh, certainly, um, certainly. I think that, however, that the broad biblical witness, that the major themes of the Bible fit very well with the kind of theology I'm proposing in this book, the theology of love that I have on the table. Mm-hmm. But I admit that there are some passages that don't fit. Now, one way to, to, to approach this is, and maybe this is the way you feel more comfortable with, is to say, okay, they don't all fit, so I'm just going to live with the, you know, the, the uh, the chaos or the difference, or the you know the things mm-hmm. that don't gather, and we'll just kind of go forward. Um, my view is to say, no, let's let's see what we can do with the broad themes, the major themes, the the overall biblical, biblical witness. Let's see what we can do with that, and try to shape a theology that had it's cohesive, that's logically coherent, all the while realizing you know we can't figure it all out. We're not going to mm-hmm. perfect, and see where that will take us. Uh, that's kind of my approach to scripture. Try to make some constructive model that takes into account what I think are the broad biblical witness and say to the, the minor themes, you know, I'm not going to cut them out of my Bible like Thomas Jefferson, but um, <laughs> I, also I also don't think I have to allow those to uh, have undue influence in the attempt to make sense of the whole. Okay, that is fair enough. And listeners, I, you know, I just want you to hear this. I know that we hammer away at this in the the Christian Humanist podcast, our other show. Um, but uh, when we do theology, I mean, you know, the questions that arise are sometimes far more interesting than the answers to the questions we already had. And hopefully you're hearing here, we've got two very different approaches to how you take the biblical canon as a whole. And yeah. I want to propose to you that, you know, although uh, Tom thinks that I'm wrong and I think that Tom's wrong, the fact that we're continuing to have the conversation means that these questions are live, and that's Amen. important. So, yeah, Tom, totally. I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what. I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation, and I've not been all that nice. And you've been very generous to respond to my oh, petulant questions. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so in the spirit of hospitality... If you get, then this is not bad at all. I've had much, 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 much meaner things. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Tom, I thank you for saying that. But all the same, in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. So what do you want our listeners thinking about Providence, Love, David Hume, or whatever else as we head towards the door? Uh, the last word. Um, you know what I want most in my life, Nathan, and everyone else who's listening? What I care about the very most is that I want to live a life of love. That's number one. That's mm-hmm. the thing that motivates me with my relationship with my wife, my daughters, my friends, my enemies, my country. It even motivates the way I read scripture. And I think it derives from scripture. Um, 
I don't know everything. I've changed my mind many times in my life. Uh, but I'm pretty confident on this issue that love is what matters most to me. And I intend to pursue love with everything I've got, which includes pursuing love with the way I think, loving God with my mind, um, being the kind of person who combines both my head and my heart in the way I try to live my life. So maybe that, let's let that be my last word. Tom Ward, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Hey, it's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot for your good questions. And again, you weren't mean at all. This is a great <laughs> conversation. I'm honored that you invited me on the show. Well, very good. Well, listeners, thank you for downloading and listening in. I'm going to remind you again that you can download uh, Tom's book as an ebook at ChristianHumanist.org. Uh, Christian Humanist Profiles is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I am Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.